What's up, everybody? This is a very special creator interview episode of the Galactic Dads podcast. As mentioned before, we will be interviewing Brian Dillon, who is the co-founder and president of Fanbase Press. We're excited to get into it. This was a great interview. And check out all the links in the show notes to really enjoy everything mentioned in the show. Five, four, three, two, one. Before we get started, does anyone want to get out? The Galactic Dads Podcast, a podcast by Geeky Dads, talking about all things geek, dad life, I am the father, and beyond, language. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Galactic Dads Podcast. Of course, I am B, and today I'm joined by a very special guest. I am joined by the co-founder and president of Fanbase Press. I'm talking to Brian. How are you today, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing? <laughs> you know, just running through the dad day, kind of finished up trying to get the kids to bed. I got a last-minute game of Candyland and played Snow sure, White sure. and Cinderella with my daughter before getting her to okay. go to bed. So it's been a wild day. How about you? Um, You know, I have twins right now. They're about... Uh, six months old just over six months so every day is an adventure of some sort you know, <laughs> you know some are more challenging than others but uh but every day is, is sort of a random uh you know you you see what comes your way <laughs> i will not even pretend to be tired then because you clearly <laughs> will be way more tired than i am <laughs> we don't need to make a competition out of it. <laughs> no no we we would certainly both lose to our wives i'm sure that's fine i'm sure yes <laughs> But uh, I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on the show with us. I was very uh, flattered and pleased when I believe your co-founder and the editor-in-chief yeah. of Fanbase Press reached out to me on Twitter. Um, and I was like, this looks like a great opportunity. Why not check it out? And uh, I said, okay, let's do this. I do apologize that it took me about a month. I just had to clear up the schedules and everything. It's June is a crazy oh, no. month for us. No apologies necessary. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. All right. I'm very, very good. Um, let's jump right into it, though. Let's talk about Fanbase Press. What what exactly is the publishing company? Uh, when did it get started? And what kind of stuff do you guys publish? Well, we've been around for, uh, we just celebrated our 10th anniversary last year. So we're, we're just over uh, 11 years. We're starting on our 11th year this year. Um we're a uh, sort of a, uh, an odd conglomerate. We are a, both a uh, comic book publisher and a geek culture website. Um, that sort of arose from the fact that uh, comics take a long time to, uh, to produce, as I'm sure many of your listeners are aware. Um, and so when we had our first book uh, back in 2010 being, being worked on, um, we needed we needed to uh, keep ourselves busy while the while the artist was keeping uh, themselves busy. And uh, when speaking to some some friends uh, in the entertainment industry, they recommended uh, that we get involved in writing some blogs, some reviews, things like that, and and start basically gathering uh, an audience. And uh, basically, there were three of us that were involved. It was my wife. Uh, Barbara um, and a uh, uh, old roommate uh, who went to college with me named Sam Rhodes. We started the company, and it was initially called Fanbase uh, or 
a fanboy comic. Um, and, and we just, uh, we, you know, took it on the task of, of, you know, writing a one blog per week, which seemed like a, a big hefty, uh, load at the time. Uh, it quickly, you know, uh, took off and, and, and became more, uh, um, I think the inciting incident actually was, uh, the walking dead, the first season of the walking dead had just premiered and we had a friend, um, who happened to randomly get a connection to John Bernthal. And we got the really cool opportunity of being able to interview John Bernthal while he was, uh, it was over the phone, but while he was on set shooting, um, the, I think it was the second season of the walking dead. That was very and, cool. And, it was, it was super cool. And he's, he's such a, a friendly guy. And, and obviously, uh, everyone was tuned into that show at that time. You know, it was a big deal, uh, even if you didn't know the comic. But, right. uh, that kind of, uh, helped us cut our teeth, got us established a little bit in the, in the geek news world. And, um, before we knew it, you know, other requests were coming in for reviews of indie comics, uh, interviews with, with other creators, whether they were actors or comic creators or what it, whatever it may be. And uh, then uh, after that, we, we released our, our first graphic novel, um, and, and it just kind of took off from there. We've been able to produce uh, one to two uh, graphic novels per year. Um, we tend to release them digitally before they, they go out into the trade paperback uh, format. Um, and uh, it's just, you know, it's a really cool place. If, if you're into... Uh, geeky things, which I would assume anyone listening to this, this podcast would be, um, you know, we've got a lot of free content on the site, a lot of discussion about, um, storytelling and why stories matter. And, uh, of course there's our, our publishing line to check out as well. Very cool. That sounds like a lot of information there, um, which is also great, but of course that opens up to more questions for me. So, um, sure you said something that was very interesting to me and on your website, you talk about stories and why stories matter. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you say stories matter? Well, um, you know, we really dove into that. I mean, I think it's always going to be in the DNA of, of the, um, of the company. Uh, three co-founders came from, uh, initially came from a stage theater background we were all comic fans we were all com- you know fans of, of genre entertainment but what we were doing uh, in school was working um and studying stage theater acting um and and things associated with that and i think we were steeped in, in the idea of, of storytelling being part of human culture but um over the last uh, year specifically on, on, on our 10th year, we focused on for our 10th anniversary on what we called our Stories Matter initiative, which was really uh, taking a look every time we take a look at a story, whether that's through a review, through an interview, um, through you know, just discussion of a, a trailer that's been released, not just discussing the um, you know, the fun aspects of it, you know, how it connects to the comic mythology, what we think is cool. Um, but also looking at it from the perspective of all these stories that are being told, whether they seem um, inconsequential or not, you know, everything from Shakespeare to, like, say, Fast and the Furious, they, they speak to the need for stories in human culture. You know, we, 
have uh, storytelling is it's something that's sort of unique to uh, human beings and has been around since the beginning of, of human civilization, if not before. Um, and so it plays a really important uh, role in, in, in human life, I think. And we, sometimes I think we forget that because we just, we digest this stuff so quickly. You know, the new movie is out, the new series is out, the new comic is out. And, and, and we focus on uh, what happened to the character, what was the big twist. But I think uh, what's really nice about fan-based press and what we've really put a focus on is taking a step back each time to be like, well, what, what can we take away from it? You know, what does, even if it's not the specific um, theme of the entire piece or it isn't the, the message that is the, the sole message that's being uh, offered, there's, I, I have yet to find a story where you can't glean something that speaks to uh, the human experience, right? that offers something to be discussed or examined or sort of uh, put in perspective with, with uh, your own life. And, and so I, I really enjoy that aspect because, say, for like the, the Marvel film, um, one of the great things about going to a, you know, an MCU film or a, a Star Wars film or something like that is yeah, you have a great time, but usually there is a, a, a larger discussion that you can have with your friends and family uh, afterwards. And not only does that uh, enrich the story for you, but I think that enriches those relationships. That becomes more of a an important shared experience with those people you care about because it, it's not just 100%, you know, fluff or entertainment or, or uh, easily, uh, you know, tossed to the side. It becomes something that that has uh, some sort of importance within your life. Yeah, I have to absolutely agree that shared experience is really huge right now. Uh, without it, I don't know that we would have the types of conversations that we do on Geek Culture Podcast, you know, for lack of a better term, that may be a little too over over general generalizing. Uh, but, yeah, that shared experience is huge. And I think that's why a huge chunk of us, uh, during this pandemic, have really missed the movies. Uh, but fortunately, you know, Disney Plus has stepped up and is delivering all these shows that we can now, you know, watch with friends, either virtually or in person and with family, uh, to still get a small amount of that experience back. Definitely. And and I think uh, given, uh, you know, this being the, uh, the Galactic Dads podcast, I think that also that really ties into... I mean, I'm fairly new at it, but I'm so looking forward to having those kind of discussions with my kids. You know, I think that that's one of the greatest uh, gifts of, of some of the, the wealth of genre entertainment out there is it's really easy to get, you know, uh, someone who's young and excited into something that has whatever spaceships or dragons or superheroes, but then to be able to have a discussion about like why we do what you know, do the right thing, even though if it's hard or, or why, uh, you know, violence maybe isn't the answer or whatever the message or, or topic might be, to be able to have that discussion, um, even in a small fashion, because you watched a story together, you read a story, experienced the story, I guess, together, uh, just seems like a gift to me. Yeah. Oh, it's a very abundant gift, too, especially when you, I know I've already mentioned it, but you know, streaming services that just feature nothing but cartoons with morals in them, um, whether it's mm -hmm. the, the old Disney movies or some of the newer ones, um, really 
do a lot of the heavy lifting of parenting when it comes time to trying to instill morals just for the sake of being a moral and good person and using these movies and or shows or uh, stories or fantastic ways to accomplish that task. I think that's a really good point that you have. Yeah, for sure. And, and I don't want to minimize um, anyone's, you know, other heroes or the religion, but I, I, I look at it and I look at characters, especially like um, the way the superheroes have sort of replaced Greek heroes in, in society. The, you know, the purpose of those characters, you know, in, in Greek and Roman times was to convey certain lessons and to convey certain uh, messages to individuals, to humans, to, to citizens, and and for there to be discussion. And I feel like that is happening now in a, in a different way. We don't always acknowledge it or realize it, but, but at least for me, I'm fairly, I guess I'm a fairly optimistic uh, uh, individual. Um, and I always, you know, my pop culture heroes taught me how to be the person I wanted to be. I mean, it's not to say there weren't other influences that were very important, but I, it was just important, as important that I had characters like, um, like Ellen Ripley or Kyle Reese or uh, Luke Skywalker, you know, present in my life because I, those, those moments where they, they stood up for the things that they valued or they expressed certain values that I felt were important because I watched those movies over and over. I, I still carry those things with me. And I think a lot of people that would consider themselves fans of geek culture or part of, of geekdom uh, do the same. I find that very interesting that you uh, named two characters I did not think you were going to mention uh, as teaching you, you know, like ways to be a good person or stand up for what you believe in. Uh, I, for whatever reason, just assumed Batman was going to come out of your mouth. And that's why <laughs> I guess I'm projecting. Uh, but you said Ellen Ripley and Calories first and then Luke Skywalker. Are you a big James Cameron fan? I, I am a big James Cameron fan. I mean, I, I think that uh, even more so, I'm, I'm very much a, uh, a, a huge Alien fan, uh, uh, you know, but, but Cameron, the Terminator series, had a lot of effects on me. I mean, uh, Ellen Ripley, I think, was, was my hero as, as, a, as a young boy. But Kyle Reese also, as much as he's sort of a side character, um, just informed so much about what I thought was, important you know the uh, the, uh, he was the, the ability to sacrifice every to put everything on the line you know whether it's for another person or for a greater cause and um he's also i guess an individual that i really connect with because he just um he really takes some punishment in that film in the ultimate keeps, way yes he's going yeah yeah a hundred percent obviously yeah it goes all the way to the end but um but, you know, I think that I guess what I liked was he wasn't like a hulking, uh, you know, Schwarzenegger type character. I mean, even though you see like Schwarzenegger do something similar in something like Predator, where he he's really put through the, the ringer. Um, Kyle Reese is just a guy, you know, I mean, maybe he's a, a, a little more in shape, a little more pretty than, than the rest of us. But but he lives in a pretty hellish life. And he, you know, he bases everything on on. Um, I guess his hope for humanity is almost based on uh, a photograph that he carries in his pocket, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so, and he, and he's also a, a romantic to a degree. 
I mean, he traveled, as he says it in his own words, he traveled through time for, for a woman that he loved, you know, that he never met. And, and so I, I don't know, that stuff all connected with me very strongly as he, as a young man. And, and I, I guess to answer the question you were saying, I, there's many uh, creators I love, but James Cameron does have uh, something that really attracts me with, with all of his work, where he really knows how to, even, even if he gets fuzzy on specifics, like, you know, there are definitely flaws to Avatar. It's been discussed over and over, but the heart of the story is always present, I feel like, in a, in a Cameron uh, project. He, he doesn't mess that up. He always knows how to uh, give us characters who have um, they have some sort of uh, human feeling that you can connect with, you know, some reason for doing things they do. They're, they're usually not just empty vessels. Indeed. Even in a movie, say, like, I don't know, Titanic, uh, mm-hmm. Jack is so very full of hope. And when he, you know, of course, meets Kate Winslet's character, uh, she doesn't have very much hope. And so even his purpose, even though we know by the end of the film, he can't quite make it up on that table, which, you know, modern arguments aside that he probably could, whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, his character, although his interaction in time with her is very little, he makes a very profound impact on her and gives her meaning to live. So yeah, it's, it's very true. It's very interesting that I'm thinking about James Cameron films now and, and what those characters actually do outside of, you know, enjoyment of the film. When you think about it, I did not mm-hmm. think that I would be doing that in this interview. This is why I love organic interviews. They're incredible. Excellent. So you said that Ellen Ripley was like one of your bigger influences, bigger heroes. And then of course, Kyle yeah. Reese, and then, Sticking with the James Cameron theme, there's something interesting about those two characters in particular, especially when it comes time for the sequels to Alien with Aliens and I believe 86, mm-hmm. and then Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is around 91, 92, I believe. Uh, yeah. In the sequels, it seems like children play very central roles, and being sort of either a mother or father figure is a key theme of those movies. What do you think about that, specifically more so in Aliens? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I think there's many things that you can criticize uh, Cameron for. Um, and, and maybe uh, even I think in the modern lens, you could potentially look at some of the uh, feminism, feminism angles and go, all right, well, that's a little dated in this fashion or that fashion because it, it puts a, a woman in a certain box. Um, you know, not every woman is necessarily guaranteed uh, someone who wants to be a mother or definitively has maternal instincts. Um, I think we, we know that by now. But at the, that said, I do think that Cameron... Um, he he clearly i think has a real respect for uh women and for mothers i don't know what his relationship was with his own mother i would assume that there's something uh within his own life that that informs that but i think you can look back at relationships like with um gail ann hurd who he was he was uh married to for a number of years and you can see that he, uh, he surrounded himself with women who were 100% capable, who were doing, you know, the same job that he was doing, 
um, but perhaps weren't always getting as much credit or as, as much um, of the the respect or the, uh, uh, I guess, attention. Um, and so I, I think that sort of informed what he was doing with characters like Sarah Connor and, and Ellen Ripley, because you do see that they are, you know, clearly they're, they're mothers, they have maternal instincts. Ripley very quickly, um, very quickly becomes connected with Newt you know, in, in that mm. film. Yes. Um, and, and in a real believable sort of tangible way. Um, I, I, uh, and, and what's, I, what's interesting about that, I mean, is, is in theatrical cut of aliens, there's not really an explanation. It's just, it just happens mm. in, in the director's cut. There's actually this, uh, you know, explanation about how uh, Ripley's daughter passes away of old age while she's stuck traveling through space and in the cryotube for a long time. And that sort of informs the connection that she, she has with Newt. But, um, but I think uh, alien specifically is, is, is really interesting because it, um, or I mean, aliens is really interesting because I mean, that whole movie is about mothers. Uh, mm-hmm. You've got the, oh, yes. the queen alien, you know, as, as the, mo- the mother of the, uh, the xenomorphs. And then you have, have Ripley and we're, essentially pitting them against each other, but their, their missions are sort of the same, you know, to, to save their, their, their charge, their brood, whatever you want to consider it. But I think what I took away was why I'm so grateful for things like what Cameron did with, with uh, Sarah Connor and, and, and Ripley is I, what I took away from those films was that, there so many I, I guess I was able to cut through so many uh like toxic pitfalls that I felt like my fellow uh young males fell into. I never once considered the idea that uh you know a woman wasn't able to stand at the same level as a man. I mean, not only Ripley, but I mean we have characters like Vasquez and Pharaoh and, and other Marines present in, in aliens that really stand it toe to toe with uh their male counterparts. And then you also have, I guess this is another reason why maybe I like Kyle Reese and, and characters like Kix, uh, who's also, you know, portrayed by Michael Bean in, in Aliens. If you have very clear representation of, char- uh, of male characters who aren't, uh, they're not threatened by the female characters around them. It doesn't make, you know, Kyle or, or Hicks less masculine for them to allow someone with more knowledge uh, about the situation to take the lead or allow a woman to, to, you know, be in that scenario at all. They, they don't, it, it, it's not, um, it's not something where they are seen as superior and they really become like equals and teammates. And, and at least for me in my relationship with my wife, that's what makes it work. You know, the idea that we are, uh, we are a partnership and, and that I can count on her, in a way that um, I think that, that that was depicted in these films that that I there's no assumption that there's anything lesser about the opposite sex or even deferring to them to save you <laughs> in yeah. a lot of these movies yeah. of course it's very true yeah you know and I don't know about you but in my life that has happened more than once where I have been very grateful that uh, my wife is who she is because. Uh, it's the situation where I, I know on either side of, uh, of the uh, 
relationship, if one of us is in trouble, the other one's going to go to the lengths needed to help them out. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Well, that's fantastic. Always great to have a partner uh, in any means to help you out, especially when it comes to raising kids. Um, yeah, yeah. And we don't all have the sweet exosuit that Ripley has and aliens to help us out. So <laughs> it's good to have someone to count on for sure. It's very true. Power loader probably would come in come in uh, handy every now and then. Perhaps when changing some of those diapers. Absolutely. Uh, so I know that uh, you were talking about, you know, some of the stories it seems that shaped you and informed you. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the stories that you shape uh, personally sure at, at Fanbase Press. Because uh, I know that you were a writer of one of the, I want to say one of the first uh, series from Fanbase. I could be wrong. Um, no, you're, you're right. I was, okay. I was co-writer of the the first story we did, Something Animal, and then I was uh, the sole writer of the, the second one, Identity Thief. Identity Thief, yeah. yeah. Excellent. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about Something Animal? Because that I'm I'm always fascinated by the first germ of a story, the the first story mm-hmm. that comes out of a writer, uh, whether or not it's the first published one or not, uh, and then to see how kind of the next story changes from the original story. I'm always fascinated by that, how the ideas change once one story is told and the other's ready to come out. So, uh, please, sure, tell us something wonderful about something animal. <laughs> Well, what's interesting, um, something animal and identity thieves actually have a pretty strong connection because uh, both were developed uh, initially as uh, part of a, a film anthology, a horror film anthology, sort of in vain of uh, something like Creepshow um, or Tales from the Side or, or something like or that. Tales from um, the Crypt, maybe? Sure. Yeah, that would be an, a, another a great example. Um, so the idea was... Uh, we were uh, the group that I was working with when first developing these ideas. We were all uh, young, uh, penniless actors out here in in, uh, in California, Los Angeles, and we each had an apartment, and a, you know, a few of us had cars and things like that. And we sort of like went, "All right, we have we have these spaces, we have these uh, resources. What what stories can we tell?" And we were all horror fans, so we kind of wanted to keep it in, in that vein. Um, and eventually those stories were, uh, the film never, didn't really ever happen. It got to a certain stage and uh, the comics sort of took over. But these stories were reintegrated into the idea of like, all right, we can split them up. And they each can be developed a little bit further and, uh, and can become graphic novels, another visual medium. Um, so for something animal, um, Funny enough, I, I am the co-writer of the graphic novel, but it's actually based on a short story by a friend of mine uh, named Ben Rhodes. Um, and one thing that we shared uh, is that we were big vampire fans. I've always been a huge fan of vampire mythology of, of almost any kind. Um, and uh, Ben wrote a short story, uh, I would say maybe in the early 90s maybe a little bit later than that, that was sort of a response to the romanticized Anne Rice uh, vampires at the time. And um, basically he wanted to take vampires back to sort of a, um, a, a 
tragedy or a curse. You know, he felt like there was too much uh, attractiveness to becoming a vampire at at the time and and wanted to sort of go the opposite direction. And so uh, we took that short story and and developed it. And it's basically uh, a story about uh, isolation where uh, an individual named Jack, uh, him and his sister are attacked by a vagrant one day uh he ends up bitten um and his sister is killed and then it's sort of following his slow descent where you as an audience are are debating hey is is jack becoming something else or is there some sort of uh post-traumatic stress that he experienced that he's going through and this these things that he's seeing, these things that he's feeling are all within his own mind as opposed to actually happening to him. And, and I, I, I won't, you know, like spoil where, where it ends up, but that, that's sort of the, the crux of, of the story about uh, whether you can trust what you are, are experiencing uh, as you go through it. Yeah, that's always fun whenever you see an answer to whatever the popular kind of, like you said, romanticized vampires are, uh, I think it's always great when you see something that takes it back to, well, it's not cool to be allergic to sunlight and have to sustain yourself on the blood of others. Uh, Not every vampire should be rich. Not every vampire should just immediately become an elitist uh, and also look fantastic. I think that's one thing that movies have done that really made being a vampire cool is everyone looks good. I mean, even in Lost Boys, where it doesn't seem like they're living the best life, uh, they still all look fantastic. And that was bad. Yeah, when... you, you want to be you want to be part of that gang. You know, it's sort of like the cool, the cool kids. <laughs> Absolutely. And, I mean, to take it to an extreme, you could always just be, you know, Edward Cullen uh, and eventually right. become Batman, which I, I'm going to say it out loud. I really am looking forward to that movie. Uh, but... Uh, a glittering in the daytime type of person. Like there is nothing wrong with being a vampire in that twilight world because it is all pros. <laughs> There's not a single thing that seems to be a turn off that you even get cool mutant powers when you become a vampire. So, uh, yeah, it's almost like being a superhero. Like you, like you said, it's almost, uh, it's almost akin to like X-Men or, or something like that. Yeah. Which is, I mean, completely unfair. Uh, how can you, <laughs> seamlessly blend in the superhero genre without even referencing it. I don't, I don't get it, but um, it's very cool to see any type of story that takes it more towards the grounded body horror image of what being a vampire really would be like, and especially if it's more animalistic. And anytime I get a story where I have an unreliable narrator, which it sounds like something animal kind of gives you, Sure, yeah. Then I certainly am much more on board because I enjoy the mystery and also that feeling of, oh, I don't know either. Let's find out together what's going on. I always love those types of stories. Well, we were, we were very benefit also with that story by uh, the artist Robert Burroughs, who he hand painted each panel uh, individually and then was assembling these panels in Photoshop. And so what is interesting is Robert really wanted to the story to operate as a the graphic novel to operate as an art book as much as it did as a story and so um you get a sense um because you are stuck with this one character a lot who is he, after the events that happened with his sister he's just 
by himself sort of processing these various things he's seeing. And so there's very little dialogue, but the art is really there to be, um, you know, sort of uh, picked to pieces, to be examined, to be re-examined. And, and uh, I personally love that as well, especially with an unreliable narrator, because I feel like you, in some ways, people bring their own, um, their own feelings with it, their own tone to the story, because we all interpret art in a different way. And so because of that, you end up interpreting the story sort of uniquely with each, each reader, which is a, a real fun experience as a creator as well. Absolutely. And that even makes it fun for the creator and, of course, the consumer, whoever's getting to enjoy mm-hmm. it. And I always love any type of comic where it can be enjoyed both as a story, as a total overall experience through the medium of, of comic book storytelling, where you get that in between the lines to fill in the action from the, the art. And then I also really like comic book stories where the art itself is an experience on its own. If you were to just take it away from the story, you would still have something very entertaining to be consumed. So I'm very interested in the artwork for that and how you described it as being put together. Excellent. And then that transitions us into the next anthology piece or proposed anthology, which is Identity Thief, right? Right, yeah. And that, that one was one that was, uh, as I mentioned, it was written solely by me. Um, this is uh, also a story that is, is somewhat... Um, I would say it's not as solitary as, as something animal, but um, it was designed initially to be shot within an apartment. We expanded it slightly when we got to the graphic novel, um, but it takes place mostly in a single apartment. It's about um, two characters, a, a couple Daphne and Craig, who uh, are moving into a new apartment for the very first time um, in LA, which was sort of the exact experience that I was having at the time and i, I guess I, I can share this wait one of the first apartments that i moved into with my who would be my future wife uh, when we moved to la um had a mysterious hatch in the ceiling of one of the closets Mm-mm. there was a, nope. a sort of a nope. co- <laughs> there was sort of a coat closet and there was a hatch in the ceiling yeah and it, it was exactly as you're describing where i was like what the hell is this what why is there a a hatch leading into the ceiling. And we uh, we opened it slightly at one point and, and a large amount of dust and, and dirt fell out. And it was just kind of, you know, dark enough that I was like, you know, I'm not going to mess with this right <laughs> On now. On second thought. It. Yeah, just leave it closed. But, but there was always that thought of like, what is up there? You know, does this connect to other, like are there other hatches in other people's apartments where you could... Uh, go in this hatch and come out another hatch or is there like some sort of weird storage space is there somebody up there is there something up there um and so that's where this this story sort of came from the idea of like all right what if something truly nightmarish was living in this hatch and coming out at night and and doing things anything like it doesn't like i i didn't even think about the creepiness of like what if it attacks you or what if it um, you know, has uh, some sort of violent intentions. Just the idea that there was a presence that could enter your apartment 
you know, while you weren't there, while you were asleep and sort of um, invade that intimate um, personal space really was the inspiration for for this story. And um, and I had always, as I had mentioned, I was, I was I've been a huge alien fan. So I was I was very into H.R. Giger and sort of the the nightmarish uh, body movement and look of of the, the xenomorph. Mm-hmm. And I was also um, very uh, traumatically uh, affected by E.T. as a child. The, the first like 20 minutes of E.T. really, <laughs> really screwed me up because they kind of play it a little bit like a horror movie. You know, you don't know, is E.T. a good guy, a bad guy? They don't show his face. He's kind of breathing weird and scaring the crap out of Elliot. And so that really messed with me. And so the, the uh, creature present in Identity Thief sort of became a meld between um, the Xenomorph and, and E.T. and... And uh, again, I won't give away where that story heads. There are some specific identity thief um, type moments that that are a little more on the nose. But the majority of it is the idea of of this creature being present within the house and and coming out of the hatch at different times uh, in this new apartment that this, this young couple has just moved into. Yeah, that sounds like you're putting a lot of your experience into the story. And uh, honestly, I'm, I really just hope it's not autobiographical and there's just something <laughs> you can't share with anybody. I, I have not encountered anything in, in that graphic novel. It's more, I would say, if, if anything, you know what the, the real, uh, the closest I get to the reality of that book is, and I, I think a lot of people can relate to this, but um, I tend to be the one that uh, falls asleep last. In, in my household. And so very often I'm the one turning the lights off and making sure the door is locked. And uh, because I think I, because I have an active imagination, um, there are times when uh, I start thinking about creepy things, uh, you know, or, or think I see something out of the corner of my eye. And I have to sort of just feel myself and go, there's nothing there. Just walk to the bed, <laughs> you know, don't look over there in the darkness and get, freaked out don't look in the mirror uh don't look in the reflection of the of the uh the framed photo you know and and see something that isn't there and so i i think that that experience is informs a lot of it as well because uh sometimes that can just be terrifying and you really have to go like all right well i'm not going to let my my imagination run away with itself i'm gonna you know accept like that's all that is happening. My mind is playing tricks on me. But I, I think we all have that. We have that primal instinct of like something's in the dark, something I don't know, uh, and, and that threatening. Oh, absolutely. I, too, am usually the last one to fall asleep in my house at night because I'm up doing Galactic Dads related things. And by the time mm-hmm. I come upstairs, I'm the one who gets to turn the lights off and check the locks and uh, everything of that nature. And it never fails and for you, it might be E.T., Xenomorph, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, out of the corner of my eye, just barely catching a flicker of light from the moon outside is always a veiled woman. And I blame, I swear, oh, boy. <laughs> I swear, I blame the Conjuring movies. Or okay. uh, uh, more specifically, I think Insidious uh, really did it for me. Sure. And uh, that's always, and I always have to have the conversation with myself that don't, don't go investigate. Don't fall victim to any of the tropes. 
of these horror movies that you obviously have been influenced by, uh, just remember Batman would not be scared and just go. That's a good, good. I like how you use Batman as, as mm-hmm. sort of the, uh, the way to soldier through. That's a good one. <laughs> That's right. I'm a 35 year old child. I have to tell myself <laughs> Batman would be okay. But also, you know, you're right. At, at this point, it is realizing that your mind and your imagination is much scarier than anything that you could ever see um, For sure. on film or in real life. The, the things that your mind can do are, albeit incredible, but also quite terrifying. Uh, and that's one Very thing true. I always have to remember when it comes to my kids. You know, if my daughter tells me there's a monster in the room, I can't say, no, there's not, go to bed. I have to say, well, let's see. And then we have to work mm-hmm. our way through it. And we have to talk about it. Um, because when I was little, it was, no, there's not, go to bed. And I got to sleep with a monster just seconds away from murdering me all night. Like, in my mind, that's the, <laughs> the situation. So I always have to try and remember that. Uh, well, that, always, that always reminds me of the scene in uh, Monster Squad. Uh, where they I don't know if you've, you've seen this film, I but where the mummy is in the movie. closet. Yes. And the That's... dad comes in, he's like, oh, look at that mummy, he's so scary. And the mummy's right there. Yeah. The kid out. <laughs> and the little girl's just absolutely traumatized, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> That's also, there's some great scenes in that movie with Frankenstein's monster, too. Where yeah. she and the mm-hmm. little girl ends up playing with Frankenstein's monster and they're at a tea party in the middle of broad daylight and absolutely just takes all scariness away from the creature. And then mm-hmm. you're right back to the werewolf man, who I think is the absolutely most terrifying creature in that movie. Sure. When he comes back to life in the ambulance. That I mean, I was a kid when I saw that. I was like, my God, I will never <laughs> leave an open door in the middle of a van ever because this creature is going to come out and get me. And I'll have dynamite. No, my friends had dynamite. I couldn't stop this yeah, right. thing. <laughs> so You're making silver, silver bullets at uh, shop glass. That's not happening. Yeah, and I don't have <laughs> a neighbor who has a deep understanding of the occult and can help me battle these things. I'm, right. My neighbor's working on her Etsy page. And like, there's, there's nothing I can help with. Right. That's actually, that's hilarious. I do, that movie, I think, doesn't get as much love as it deserves. Because watching Monster Squad as an adult, that movie's actually really funny. Uh, the scene where they are using a virgin yeah. to close the portal or open the portal or whatever, and she recites the incantation, it doesn't work, and they say, <laughs> and she goes, well, he doesn't count. And you just start laughing as an adult, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed that. No, that's a great, it's a great film. And, uh, funny enough, like we, uh, my wife and I, we loved that film. We actually got a chance. We did a, uh, a, a published a book, uh, comic called the sequels that is really speaks to eighties nostalgia and, and sort of touches on a lot of tropes like monster squad and short circuit and, and some of these, these, uh, classic films that we Johnny in the 80s Five. know. Yeah. Um, but we got to, uh, we got to work with the, the lead, Andre Gower from Monster Squad. Um, he wrote the foreword for the, the book and, and, uh, it was so cool to sit down with like, you know, the head, uh, honcho of the Monster Squad and, and be able to talk about things like this and, and the other films that he's working on. And, uh, I, I guess what I would, I would, uh, give a shout out to for Andre. If, if any of your uh, listeners haven't 
seen it already. I know it's been a very limited release, but they have done a, Andre has spent the last couple of years putting together and shopping around a amazing making of uh, documentary for monster squads. It's called Wolfman's got nards, the making of the monster squad. If you can check that out, I think, I believe it's available on Amazon prime to rent and buy. Uh, it is not only a really cool look at this film, but you get to see an experience uh, with these individuals, the cast, the crew, the director, um, where I get things unknown to a lot of us who love the film in the 80s. It was a huge flop theatrically. Uh, everyone thought it was going to be like this big smash hit. The kids thought they were going to go on to future film careers. The director thought, you know, this was his, his uh, chance to, you know, really uh, get into the business uh, and, it really dashed everyone's hopes. And, and part of the film is seeing um, how reinvigorated they all are when they begin to realize, you know, 20, 30 years later, that there's a passionate audience out there that this film means the world to. Um, so definitely don't, don't pass that one up. We call that Wolfman's Got Nards. I will yep. see if I can find that. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes because that is definitely something I will look forward to. Excellent. Always happy to pass someone on to that documentary. It's really good. I mean, that's one of the best things about sharing any type of fandom with anybody is sharing your fandom with somebody else who gets to discover it and it'll reignite that flame of nostalgia from hopefully we've already done so by talking about Monster Squad for a hot second. And then people right. just diving back in and, and getting to relive some of that excitement uh, from their childhood. That's always super exciting. It makes it definitely agree. It makes me sound like a Toys R Us kid. Like I don't want to grow up, <laughs> but unfortunately, I think I, w- I think I we're really all like is. that a little bit. You know, if you're into this stuff, you 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 know, unless you've become very cynical and bitter, you uh, you have some of that. You you know, because you are, I think, chasing some of those uh, those highs that that happened when you when you were a, a kid and and you you could tap into that awe and wonder fairly easily. You know, I think it's things like things like Spielberg films and I mean I guess to these degrees today it's things like Stranger Things and that are playing into that nostalgia that that sort of uh, feed that that need you know allow those those bits of wonder to happen again Star Wars I think for a lot of people still uh, has that aspect to it and and has a lot of uh, loyalty because of that but um, you know it can be both a a positive and a negative thing um, which is actually what, what the, the sequels, uh, the graphic novel we did is about. It's sort of about how, um, it's basically for, for, uh, kids from Spielbergian type films, as I was saying, things like, uh, you know, a, uh, short circuit. We have, um, never, uh, like a never ending story, analogous character. Uh, we have, um, someone who went through a similar experience with a monster squad. And then, uh, of course, someone who, uh, who experienced something close to E.T. Um, these kids uh, have these amazing experiences in this book uh, in the 80s. And then uh, we see them 30 years later. And that was sort of like the high point of their lives. And they've sort of gotten stuck in, in place because of that. They, you know, their lives never reached the, the pinnacle they thought they would because they, they're always looking back at these experiences and never able to look forward. Um, and so we follow them on a, a sequel 
essentially to their original adventures where all four of them are brought together to uh, to go on a, a another adventure now as adults. But the theme of the, of the book is really about like nostalgia and how how it, it's this powerful thing, you know, like it it does some really wonderful things for us and it can be accessed in a really good way. But it can also be really unhealthy if you uh, get too locked into it. You know, if you let it control you or if you let it turn you like bitter or angry because things aren't the way they were when you were a kid, um, you know, it can it can be a negative force in your life as well. Absolutely. I mean, talk about there's this incredible draw to view the past in this rose colored lenses and kind of put on your blinders for everything that actually could have been negative around it. And that's a dangerous thing when you're looking back uh, and, and not being able to realize that that was still reality. And then especially when you see it in entertainment wise, it's even more so. So you see things in a positive way. So it is very dangerous. I agree with you. Uh, but it's also almost unavoidable. Everybody just kind of fondly looks back to, to times past because uh, there's always something that you can hang on to there. And you're absolutely right. I think that's why all this kind of new nostalgia wave is hitting, um, well, I guess aging millennials really with shows like Stranger Things and the resurgence sure. of Star Wars, as you mentioned. Even though I think the Star Wars stories we're getting right now are up there with the original trilogy, I think that they're doing a superior job of telling great story right now. Agreed, yeah. But uh, even the fondness of with these new streaming services like HBO Max is putting all of the old Batman cartoons back on Batman the Animated Series, which I still right. think is one of the finest shows to be on television, cartoon oh, or sure. not. And then yeah. Disney Plus is bringing back the you know the animated x-men series which really shaped mm -hmm. my formative years as well uh even though i look at now and i go one i can't believe they adapted that comic book story into a cartoon <laughs> and two yeah. wow this is dramatically overacted i had no idea back then <laughs> but i still love it i still love it for sure um so sometimes the nostalgia doesn't hold up you go "Ooh, yeah that was bad but a lot of times you go no this was really good why can't we have something like this anymore yeah and then you run the risk of not enjoying new things uh, because you've closed your mind off to them. So it's an excellent point. Um, I do have to say a bit of a funny story. Sure. My wife uh, was watching cartoons on Disney+. Plus. I swear we watch other stuff, but that's been it lately <laughs> uh, with our four-year-old. And my four-year-old, for whatever reason, has started watching the classic Disney princess movies. Okay. I'm not sure what kind of sparked it because honestly, animation wise and stuff, they're not as flashy and entertaining as the newer movies or the other cartoons sure. and stuff that are on there. Uh, but yeah. she has this affinity for them, which I think is sweet and endearing. Uh, but I have found out that they're not as entertaining as movies and stuff today. <laughs> it's a very linear plot line with not as much subplot going on uh, sure. or adult humor, if you will. And uh, my wife says, if I have to watch Sleeping Beauty one more time, that movie is so boring. And she goes, if your main character is asleep through most of the movie, <laughs> you know you have a problem. And I just stopped and thought about it and started laughing. She's absolutely right. Your protagonist is like, you know what? I'm going to sit this one out. You guys just have the story around me and I'll come back for the end credits. 
it is a very uh, stilted uh, story. I mean, I, I there are the, like obviously the real high. There are some real high points. Um, some of the songs. Uh, I think the the uh, spinning wheel is incredibly ominous the way that they depict it. Um, yeah, that thing looks like and, a time portal. It does not look like an actual spinning wheel. And then you have the dragon, uh, obviously at the end, which is I think probably like you know, a big point that people remember. But but what is, I guess given what we're discussing, what is also interesting is the fact that now um, I guess it's sort of that split view. You can look at it what Disney is doing as being sort of um, uh, cynical, or you could see it as really interesting in the fact that they're like with these uh, Maleficent movies that they're adding like new mythology to a story that you know is, is decades old and is kind of of dry and straightforward but i, I haven't actually um seen the most movies but from what i understand it adds a new depth uh to characters that are pretty uh you know two-dimensional within the uh within the, the animated film so i mean that that is sort of interesting and and the idea that if maybe someone enjoyed uh, Sleeping Beauty that they can now enjoy like younger audiences being brought back to such an old film through those newer films. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a pattern that they're continuing, not only with the live action remakes, uh, but the latest adaptation, which is Cruella uh, that has right, just premiered yeah. in theaters and on Disney plus, which blows me away because I never thought that they would want to do a movie about a character whose main goal was to kill 101 Dalmatians <laughs> and take their skin and wear it. It just blows my mind. And yet here they are with a movie that just for lack of a better term, it is dripping in flash and style. Like I was just blown away by the trailer for it though. I've yet to see it um, just because I, you know, there'll probably be a movie I wait for it to come completely out on. Uh, before I go sure. to it, uh, if there's a movie I'm running to the theater to see, it's Black Widow, uh, only oh, because yeah. I've been talking about that movie for the last year and a half on the show, but have had to <laughs> wait uh, for a good reason. Um, but that'll be the movie I run out and see. But still, it's just it's interesting to me how Disney is able to take the story of a classic tale and twist the viewpoint of it to give you the villain's perspective. And somehow, yeah. and I don't know if that is just kind of a symptom of a lot of the stories that we have now. Uh, I like to think of it as the Walter White effect from Breaking Bad, where you're watching shows and you end up realizing that you are voting and rooting for the villain to win. And it's because the villain's mm -hmm. your protagonist. And I, I do wonder if that's why we're getting the types of stories such as Maleficent and Cruella to give them a sympathetic edge right now. It, it, it is interesting. I can see that very much being the case. And, and um, I think what is, you know, if, if we're completely honest with ourselves, you can't deny, like, all right, Disney is a huge conglomerate, you know, like they, they're, they've got a corporate uh, uh, goal to make. And part of that is being able to mine these IPs in different ways for years to come. So there is Absolutely. something cynical, you know, to it. But I think what they do really well is they get people uh, involved, creators involved, who want more than that, that care about the story, that care about the characters, the depiction. And uh, for the most part, end up, you know, at least in, in my uh, estimate, they usually end up impressing me in the ways that uh, it's not just like, 
a prepackaged sort of uh, you know rehash of of what came before. Usually, there are different elements, there are different story points that they're touching on. And so I look at something like even if Cruella is a film that is clearly not marketed directly to me as a consumer, it is interesting to be able to continue to add layers to these characters and fully flesh them out because especially if there are fans out there, which I assume there are, I assume there are people that, you know, think about the Disney animated films or, or 101 Dalmatians the way I think about aliens and Star Wars, you know? Absolutely. And so for them, it must be a, a real treat to be able to dive into another, another story in that universe. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. You're right. There is the overall driving engine behind this, which is Mickey looking for that money, right? Sure. Uh, but you're right. Disney does do a very good job at finding people who are passionate storytellers and who are excellent at making these types of stories not only work, but somehow absolutely reach your heartstrings, uh, which everybody knows if you're a parent, those are connected to your wallet. Um, because <laughs> that's what Disney knows, and that's what they do. And uh, though Very yours, true. though yours only be six months old, right? You're going to find yes. out soon that right now, even though your kids aren't really asking for anything, there are things that you're buying for them that is solely based because they've been marketed to you as a new parent that you think your kids want. But they obviously they don't oh, want wow, anything sure. yet. There's like two things that they want, right? sleep and to eat like that's it and then of course as they get older it's everything they want everything because marketing works better on nobody than a child as we all know in the grocery store or watching tv or whatever they want everything that they see uh so it's yeah it's fun to see just how how well disney can turn i guess pull that puppet string and make pinocchio i.e parents dance and, and buy more stuff it's incredible for me right now, I think it's, I'm actually in like the fun portion because they're, you are right. They're, they're fairly like, they're, they're cheap fairly right now. You know, they're not asking for anything beyond like, Oh, I need a bottle. I need change, this kind of thing. But I, so I'm buying things that I, that I kind of imagine them liking, you know, I, of course. I have, we're, we're basically decked out in, in, in star Wars heaven right now because I just I just weaned into that when I found out I was gonna have twins. I was like, okay, well it was meant to be. You know? <laughs> That's awesome. That's so awesome. <laughs> you know? Um but you know they they baby Yoda is everywhere these days. So that was like there were so many different things to select you know from in in that aspect and and the and I've been really grateful to Star Wars for I mean it's always been about family and, and had a lot to uh give I would say fathers specifically um but like with things like the Mandalorian and the Bad Batch I mean we're basically in like Star Wars dad era it really right is now. you're absolutely right especially so with the Bad it, Batch and Mandalorian yeah and it's so much so it's so much fun to, to pick all those things but I'm at the same time going like we have all this Star Wars stuff and I'm I'm guaranteeing like what's going to happen is my kids are going to be either entirely into Star Trek and nothing else, or <laughs> or they're like, we're all about sports. No, all, none of the geeky stuff, just sports. Come on, Dad, let's go. So I, I, I'm, I'm assuming that life has a sense of humor as it always had, and and you know we'll see it. We'll see if the Star Wars stuff sticks or not. I uh, that's very funny that you bring that up because 
one of the bits of dad wisdom I was going to share with you was don't be surprised if your kids care not for any of this, any of the geek stuff at all, mm-hmm. uh, because invariably, you know, whatever dad likes is cool until yeah. they reach a certain age. And then dad, that's dumb. Your go away, dad. Uh, which I wish I could say at four years old, my daughter hasn't hit that, but she had, oh, she hasn't actually, I'm, <laughs> I'm being facetious, but I assume it's coming, but a lot of my friends with older older kids are like, yeah, man, like there's stuff that you love that you just really wish that your kids would be into, and they're they're just not. Uh, we did a creator interview with Colin Bunn uh, mm-hmm. a few minutes back where he, he was talking about his son. He was like, yeah, it's, I mean, the stuff that you really love, they just invariably end up not loving it too, and it's almost heartbreaking. And, <laughs> and I'm just, I, I know it's coming. I know there's going to be... Uh, one day where I, I go to share my, my love for obviously Batman or any of the Avengers movies and stuff. And sure. I hope my daughter likes it. Uh, but I'm preparing myself for her breaking my heart and saying no. I, I think there's always, there's always a, a little bit of hope because I, I do have things that I know, like, like for example, the alien franchise, that was something that um, I was pretty much introduced to through my mother. So I, I, some things still hold, but but at the same time, there was de- there's definitely like really strong interest that both my parents had that me and my my younger brother just yeah we we shrugged right off and I I as much as that is painful I think I, I the positive aspect I try to look at it is like well if that happens at least you know you have raised an individual who is forming their own ideas and their own opinions and and there's a success in that that there's sort of like this is the this is the uh, the the path of uh, the cycle of life, you know, this is the way it's, it's supposed to happen. Um, so again, I can go back to star Wars and be like, you know, um, I wasn't, I wasn't a huge fan of the last that I, I like, I don't hate it, but I, it was, it was a struggle for me. But one thing I do really love about that film is the idea that, uh, you know, our, our students grow beyond it. And, uh, and that I think so applies to children as well. You know, like you you can't try to control your children and force them to too harshly or hold on too tightly because they they do need to become their own people and stand on their own. And and in that is that is one of those bittersweet successes I think. You know, when it when it happens. Absolutely, and I agree with you wholeheartedly uh, that you know the Last Jedi was not my favorite Star Wars movie. Uh, <laughs> that's probably not where you thought I was going with that, but yeah. It's still, it is one of those things, like, the movie still carried the message, and it entertained, um, but it, you're right, it does display the power of, you know, kids are going to go their own way, uh, and, and mm-hmm. that is the way, and the only thing you can do is just prepare them to go that way whenever they're ready, and one of the things that, you know, as we talk about kids and stuff, and uh, more importantly, I'd like to dive into your experience as a father, um, obviously, you're a geek like us and you're a creator mm-hmm. and uh, that's all very fascinating, but I don't think that there's any job that takes more of you than being a parent. And so I'd like to hear about some of your discoveries as being a new dad. Well, you know, I think that there are lots of ones that, that people would sort of anticipate, obviously, you know, the idea of like, um, being able to continue on simply because, you know, you're, in my case, my daughter or one of my daughters looks at you specifically kind of like lock size and has that full stare. 
and you go from being like exhausted and frustrated and or angry or something like that to being like I'm you know I'm part of like the only thing that matters to this child in in the world you know beyond like your your partner uh you know they they really they really focus in on you and I, I so I think there's like typical discoveries like that but I the biggest one for me that I didn't expect is how much it enriched my relationship with my wife. Um, and I think that we're at a very early stage of that um, because they're only uh, six months right now. But uh, I'm sure, you know, any, any, any birth, any um, newborn is, is a, is a trial to go through in certain aspects. Um, you, you push to the brink in a lot of ways where you do things, you don't, you don't know how you're going to go on you know, the next day because you're so tired or overwhelmed or trying to make so many things work or nervous about, you know, what's going to happen depending on, on, you know, what's going on with your, your child. But, um, but especially with twins, it has been um, probably like, you know, one of the hardest things, uh, you know, emotionally or spiritually uh, that I've ever been through. Like we, there is clearly the physical but there's also the, the emotional like toll, the sort of psychological toll of like, you know, taking on all these responsibilities and, and trying to do everything right and trying to um, serve several masters in regards to, you know, things like the baby, your partner, extended family, your job. Um, and lucky for me, as we discussed earlier, I, I feel like I have a partner who's was really a hundred percent equal, if not more, and um, just blows me away with her commitment and her strength and her uh, her ability to to go on. And so for us, it's really brought us together even more as as a team. And I feel like you know, this is a deeper. I don't know. Like I didn't think I could go deeper, but there's a deeper respect for that person on the other side because. Uh, you know, you, I guess because you go through some things that you're that are going to be, uh, as everyone says, some of the you know some of the hardest but most rewarding things in your life. And so going through that experience, I think, is really um, it's it's hard to go through an experience like that and not have it be a life changing experience. Yeah, especially again when that's a shared experience uh, that mm-hmm. can only strengthen your bond. Uh, for for many, of course, for many that's not always the case, but um, sure, sure. But yeah, it's definitely it's something. It's something. I know my son is ten months old, uh, so he's not that much older than your sure, daughters. Yeah. And then one of the members on the show, his son is right around four, four months old now. Okay. Uh, so we're all in that kind of like new person yeah. smell stage, you know, like that intoxicating new. Here's this new human being. Uh, so it's always fun to kind of enjoy those experiences in the moment uh, but man there is nothing more heart-wrenching than as your kids get older and it, it feels like it happens slowly right because you're here every day every day but then you know you can stop and look at your kid one day and be like man you used to be so much smaller and then <laughs> god bless iphones and facebook and you know any social media where yeah. you can post a photo where just for no reason in the middle of your day they'll be like hey you have memories right now take a look at these and it is like just <laughs> pictures of your kid 
when they were much smaller and, and cute little moments that you may right, have forgotten. Right. And uh, even at six months, I'm sure you have some of those already, but it oh, only get, sure. it only gets exponentially worse because um, then you'll experience times where you're like, man, I remember when you couldn't talk. Uh, and you'll see, you'll, you'll see, you'll think of that fondly. Excellent. And then you, you look back and you see that and you just, you, there's like little videos of first words and stuff that absolutely just, you know, melt you. Sure. So there's really, there's so much fun in being a parent. Uh, but a little mm-hmm. bit back more to you, uh, you know, you talked about wanting things for your kids and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realize that uh, part of the reason why I do the show is that I'm creating kind of a written history or more of an sure. audio history that my kids will be able to look back at and be like, hey, this is what dad is like. Uh, do you find yourself doing any of that, whether, you know, maybe in the beginning that that wasn't your goal at all, but do you find yourself with a new purpose in some of your creative work uh, hoping that your kids will be able to look back at it later on in their life. Yeah, it is interesting because I, I do think like, oh, this uh, this stuff that we've done. I mean, we've uh, my wife and I are uh, part of a, a podcast that's been ru- running almost the entire time during our, our publishing, uh, you know, career, and so there there is this like almost decade long uh, documentation of that we've done, we do on camera interviews at, at conventions and, and then obviously there's the, the published work. Um, and I do, I, I guess I do think about that all the time. One thing that I think about a lot, honestly, is um, a lot of the people that were involved with fan based press or fanboy comics at the beginning um, uh, were also involved with this incredible like fan project that we did. It was a hundred percent separate from the company, um, just a pure fan love type of thing. But uh, before the films ever came out, uh, a, a good amount of us got really into uh, reading the, the Hunger Games novels as they came out and uh, just really were captured by sort of the messages about war and uh, politics and, and just human nature. Um, and that were present in it. And so we, uh, being some, from a stage acting background, we um, decided, well, well, we can do an audio drama. We've got all this recording equipment. We can, you know, uh, make effects fully style or, or find them online. And, and let's go ahead and get an adaptation out there of our vision for what it is, because who knows what the films are going to end up like. Um, and I, I was actually happier with the, some of the films than I, I expected. There are other ones that I'm, I'm like less happy with, but, uh, we ended up producing over 70 plus episodes that covered the three books of the, of the trilogy with a full cast, fully produced, um, with a fully scored, uh, and, and my wife and I actually ended up playing, uh, Katniss and Peeta for it um and i look back at that because we actually used uh one of the lullabies that was uh crafted by a by a fantastic band for us uh uh we use one of those lullabies to, to put the girls down every night it's a song that they listen to uh before they go to sleep 
And so I have, I've recently been going like, is there going to be this weird point where they listen to this audio drama and like their dad and their mom are playing these like, frankly, iconic characters at these, at this point, you know, it'd be like watching Harry Potter or something and like your dad's Harry Potter. <laughs> like, right. I, I don't know. Like I, I could see that, like we were talking before, I'm like, they're either going to love it or they're going to, they're going to hate, hate it completely, <laughs> you know, and be like, this is so embarrassing. It's out there, but uh, but uh, you know, it, it was fairly successful on its own. It's still, um, it, it we haven't done anything with it for a while. It's just out there for free on on iTunes and at the, the catnesschronicles.com uh, if anyone wants to check it out. But but it still uh, gets thousands of downloads every month, especially outside the United States. And and people you know every now and then reach out about it because it's a, it's a really faithful adaptation of of the novels and. Uh, I, 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 I'm eager and, and nervous, I guess, to see what, what, uh, place it'll have in my, in my daughter's life. <laughs> that's actually, that's, that's pretty cool, really. Cause I mean, there could be this whole like story that your daughters just get to rediscover. Sure. You know, whether it can sometimes movies come back and they're cool or properties are retooled mm-hmm. uh, and then you know, rebooted or anything like that. And, 20 years in Hollywood is a lifetime for an IP. You never know how many reboots you're going to get. So it could be really cool for them to find it organically. Like that could be something that could just be mind blowing. Like how cool (laughs) would it be for you to walk in one day and they're just listening like, Hey dad, check out this really cool thing we found. You're like, Oh yeah, that does, does that person sound familiar? Cause that's mom. And that would blow my mind. (laughs) That would be really cool though. That is really cool For that sure. you, you guys were able to make like a fully produced and scored and everything like that is cool. And just real quick plug that that's the Katniss Chronicles, right? And you can find that on yeah, the, the Katniss Chronicles. You can find that on, on either Apple podcast, just by searching for it. Where I, if you go to the Katniss Chronicles.com, there's a website set up with all the, uh, the episodes and a lot of like bonus material and behind the scenes stuff. Very cool. Very cool. So we'll definitely have to plug that in the show notes as well. Excellent. Uh, but speaking of plugging things, let's talk about the stuff that you guys have coming out from Fanbase Press right now. What What are the sure. exciting projects that we should be looking for? Well, uh, I guess there was there's two specific ones I would mention. Um, first off, uh, we have a series that is, is currently premiering issue to issue digitally on Comicsology called Nuclear Power. This is uh, written by uh, Erica Harrell, Desiree Proctor, and it is illustrated by uh, Lynn Yoshii. And uh, they are all uh, graduates of the DC uh, talent uh, program. So this is a program where DC will uh, invite uh, various young talent in the comic book uh, world or just outside it to have, uh, and I, I forget how many weeks it is, but they have a certain amount of weeks where they do these uh, essentially virtual uh, classes and lectures with the top DC talent and work to learn storytelling, uh, sequential art form, you know, just the best way to produce uh, produce comics. Um, and then what benefits for DC off of this is they can often pull that talent to go on to their uh, books. It's a great way for them to find and refine talent. 
But all three of these uh, women uh, were members of the of the DC Talent Workshop, and uh, they're just at the top of their game. Um, they're telling a story about, uh, and I, I, will, I will preface it by saying this is one of our, our kind of like the horror titles that we tell. We we do all sorts of uh, content that is accessible to all different audiences. But uh, the horror titles and nuclear power are uh, definitely directed towards mature audiences. I put them on the level of something like like The Walking Dead or The Boys or something like that. You know, the HBO's Watchmen, something uh, clearly directed to a more mature audience. Mm-hmm. Um, but nuclear power, uh, the best way to describe it is uh, sort of a, a cross between X-Men and uh, The Handmaid's Tale. Or perhaps it's also, well, I've seen some people relate it to uh, a man, uh, the man in high castle, where we are looking at an alternate uh, history tale, uh, focused on on basically the specific break in history from ours being uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. The right. idea of being like, what happened if if the bomb did drop? If there was the start of uh, a nuclear war at that point, and uh, we see uh, a somewhat dystopian uh, world. Uh, of what remains of the United States, uh, a lot of it has been become radioactive and, and is uh, uh, sort of unapproachable for for the majority of, of civilians. And so they have created uh, a border wall around the remaining civilization. And there is a sort of an authoritarian uh, rule in that world. And uh, we see a character, Claudia, who is a, a major in, in this, uh, this new society, uh, and also someone who is, is seeking to find ways to, uh, to help uh, women uh, be able to uh, continue to re- reproduce, because basically, uh, there's a lot of fallout effects from, from the bombs. And uh, there's also uh, a societal sort of decree that if if you take this test when you get pregnant and, and if your baby is, is found to um, be affected by, by the, uh, the radi- the radiation, um, you're, you're forced to give up your baby to have an abortion. Um, and she's trying to, Claudia is really trying to refine the test so that it's more accurate because there's, it seems like when she's uh, working as a doctor, uh, she's, is finding a lot of inaccuracies with the test. And so that sort of opens into this whole story where Claudia begins to realize that perhaps the, that those in charge are not being as forthcoming as they, they should be, that they're not being 100% honest with the, the citizens under their control, and that there are individuals outside the walls that, um, that the government knows about, they're referred to as variants, who were affected in very different ways by the by the radiation and actually have gained certain abilities but are you know locked out of of society because uh because of those in power and so it's really a story that speaks to a lot of things that are that i think present in our world because you're tackling things like uh, authoritarian governments uh you know uh women's rights and uh also like the sort of class struggle you know that that is constantly present within our within our world yeah excuse me it definitely is a a book that seems to tackle many 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 issues uh but i like the take on it the the alternate the alternative history 
is always a fun one to see, especially when you have an incident that, you know, people today may not know uh, unless you survived it or experienced it in that time, just how close to absolute nuclear disaster we came during the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, if you go back and look at the history books, even the history books that have that rosy colored glass to it, this was incredibly dangerous. This Mm -hmm. really just, you know... Luckily, we had two men go, ooh, they, they looked into each other's eyes and blinked a little bit, thank God, uh, because otherwise right. we could all be wearing, you know, hazmat suits and um, living a very different life today. Uh, so I love the type of alternate history that this takes. But um, the synopsis for this kind of paints it also as a political thriller, which I think is always very entertaining you know you referenced it's kind of like the man the high castle or perhaps the handmaid's tale right uh, where you you get these types of stories with a little bit of political intrigue in this new world uh, and you get to see you know just how effective these uh, political ideologies are and the ruling class and and how what they do isn't always the right thing uh just to imagine kind of how that would affect everyday people and then, of course, you have a main character who goes, maybe this isn't right. Let's see what we can do about it, which, of course, is where the story really picks up. Um, but, yeah, this looks like a great book. The Art, by the way, by Lin Yoshii. Is, did I say that right? I'm sorry. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, it's fantastic. She's just unbelievably uh, talented, you know, and, and she uh, she just, blew us away with the work that she did on this on this book so i i would say anyone who um is if this sounds remotely interesting to you take a look at the artwork uh you know either at fanbasepress.com or or look it up on comicsology um but i i would i would be 100 percent surprised if, if there was a, a comic fan or even a uh, someone new to comics who uh wouldn't be pulled in by by Lynn's artwork yeah, Lynn uh, apparently has worked before on DC's Gotham City Garage. Uh, yes. So if any mm-hmm. of you are big comics fans, you you already know uh, the type of style of this work, which is like it's it has almost a feel of cartoon, but it's it's mm-hmm. more like entrenched in almost like a like a cell shaded video game type style art. Like it's it's cartoonish, yes, but you still feel like it it handles. The, the level of the story very well. It, it's a very great fit for the type of story that you're telling in nuclear power. I think it's a, I would need Wynn to speak to this uh, to be precisely accurate, but I believe um, from my discussions, Wynn is a huge uh, anime fan and manga fan, and I feel like there's a lot of influence in that. It's not completely that kind of artwork, but there's so many influences that you can see, and that, that kind of gives it that, that cartoonish uh, nature, but you're, you're absolutely right because it's, it straddles this line where it can seem like hyper realistic in, in one frame and then have the sort of emotive nature of, of like a anime, uh, you know, when it comes to facial expressions and things like that in, in the next moment. And she's also done something really cool. That was, uh, I believe an idea Lynn came up with where there's um, this, these like, single mono monocolor or monochromatic sort of um uh tone to, to i wouldn't even say it's specific issues sometimes it's a full issue but usually it, it corresponds with what is going on in the story and where we are but the first issue is all all uh 
sort of a beige and a red and, and shades of red, which was sort of to tie into like propaganda uh, posters from uh, places like Russia and, and elsewhere that uh, we want to sort of key into that feel. As you go into the series, you'll see, uh, you know, we'll transition to uh, sort of outside the outside the border wall is, is shades of green to sort of reflect some of the, the radioactive nature. At some point, I think we hit winter and, and uh, things are in shades of blue at that point to, to express the sort of the cold nature of, of the season. But they, she does a really fantastic job with that. And it just gives such a, a personality to the, the comic series just immediately when you see it. I love that kind of, that kind of, kind of thought behind the art that as a reader, you know, you intuitively understand, but don't quite realize that you're picking up on those subtle coloring cues. But, mm-hmm. And they do this in film all the time. Um, but yeah. when you see it in comics, it's really cool because once someone mentions it to you, then you get to go back and realize the level of detail and, and thought that goes into the story and, and exactly how it's told on the page, which is very cool. I'm a big fan of knowing how stories are brought to page and the amount of work that goes into, you know, making the reader feel a certain way or drawing their eye uh, to certain parts of the page at certain times is very fascinating to me. So that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that. Of course, of course. And of course you said already uh, that you can find nuclear power at fanbasepress.com. Uh, you guys yes. have, you have a great shop tab there that you can go check out. Uh, you can also find uh, the story on Comixology. It, uh, I know it debuted in April and it's a six issue series. Uh, so are all of the issues out yet or are they still coming out serialized? We're doing month to month. We have uh, issues one through three are currently available. Issue four will be dropping, I believe, in two weeks. Um, but they will be doing a, one issue a month um, leading up to October. October will see the release of the physical trade paperback which people can pre-order if, if they want. There's still, I think, chance be in, up until August to pre-order and uh, get some cool incentives. Uh, I think in this case, it's, it's going to be uh, prints of the, uh, the covers of each uh, single issue, which uh, Lynn has just done a phenomenal job with. But um, yeah, you can fo- follow along month to month or pre-order the trade, whatever, whatever uh, suits your style. Which is very cool. And if you do find it on Comixology, it is available each issue at the incredibly great price of $0.99 cents an issue. And that six-issue trade collection uh, gives you six issues of the story for, it looks like, nineteen ninety nine. So that looks like a right. deal mm-hmm. there, too. We try to make it, we try to make it uh, as affordable as we can because we understand, you know, people don't always know our company or the, or the title. We don't have, we don't have Batman on the cover. That's you okay. Know, to encourage That's people okay. The sales. But, uh, but we, you know, we want to make it, uh, obviously we want to make sure we're honoring, you know, the, the, the talent and, and not underselling it. But we also want to make sure that it's not, um, uh, too, too formidable financially to, to give it a chance and try out something uh, new from a, a publisher. Maybe you haven't heard of. Of course. Well, I would encourage everyone to go ahead and take the chance. If you see uh, Fanbase Press, uh, pick up any of the titles. Uh, if obviously you're interested in them because you're listening this far into the episode. So I encourage <laughs> you, go check out FanbasePress.com. Uh, there's lots of great information on there with their home. You can see 
uh, the staff, you can actually take a look at what Bryant looks like. I think he's using one of his Hollywood headshots here still. Uh, he, <laughs> yeah, that looks, might need to be updated soon. <laughs> <laughs> he, he looks too fantastic uh, to be a dad with twins right now. Uh, but you can check that out. You can also see some of the blogs uh, where you guys have some reviews and other things up. And there's even a fun audio tab where you can check out the audio drama and the podcast uh, that are associated yeah. with you guys, including the podcast fan base weekly, uh, which is another great resource for you guys to check out and follow. Uh, but definitely hit up fanbasepress.com because uh, there's a lot of really great stuff there. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate you saying that. Oh, of course. Of course. I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. Uh, because obviously at this point in my career, I'm not being paid for any of this. I'm just enjoying getting <laughs> to reach out and meet other like-minded individuals. And it's been really cool so far meeting people such as yourself uh, and your wife, though not in person yet. But I assume once cons become a thing again, and boy, I can't wait for that. Uh, I will remedy that issue. Uh, but, Excellent. Uh, We're definitely looking forward to the return of convention season. Absolutely. And you know, me predominantly as a fan, but also running Galactic Dads, that's something that I'm hugely looking forward to. But you have sure. a whole nother reason to be excited about that because you're a publisher. So I imagine that uh, getting back into the cons and the swing of things there it, is just a huge boost for you guys. It definitely is. I mean, that's the, we sell most of our, our titles face-to-face um that's the easiest way to to you know i think get someone to try out a new book is for them to be able to flip through and actually talk with either the publisher or one of the, the creators if they happen to be able to be at the booth with us um so we're definitely looking forward to that and and there's also the social aspect i think comics are is such a small uh community even though it can be quite big you you end up knowing almost everyone and so uh you know these are our friends and our, our colleagues that we have only seen virtually for, you know, over a year at this point. So it'll be, it'll be definitely nice to be able to uh, get back to that. And I, I think it'll also be a challenge because we're going to see how we do that with uh, some twins tagging along. That is brave. You are brave, sir. That's very brave. <laughs> Although I took my daughter to um, Ace Comic Con uh, back in Chicago, okay. I guess a year before last. Uh, and that uh, towards the end of 2018, actually. And that was actually a fun experience, so it, it's not that bad. I, You guys will do just well. Um, however, Excellent. Brian, I do want to tell you, I thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about, you know, dad life and fan base press and also kind of like your early fandoms. Uh, I know that you guys are well-known on fan base press for celebrating fandoms uh, and creating yeah. new ones, so we definitely hope that you guys are uh, successful in that endeavor as well. Uh, but I really appreciate your time, man. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me. And, and this is, this has been an absolute pleasure. I, I love the discussion. A lot of great, uh, a lot of great back and forth. And, um, you know, and anytime you want, uh, us to come back or, or have any of our creators on, just, just let us know. We would, uh, we'd love to, uh, continue the relationship. It's a, it was a fantastic discussion. Oh, fantastic. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you're not just like my wife who watches me ramble on about comic things with a glassed over look. Uh, so I really <laughs> appreciate that. And I definitely will take you up on that offer. I enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, and I love any opportunity to speak with direct creators of the comics, uh, especially ones we talked about. Uh, the writers and artists cool. are always a, a real pleasure to talk to. 
Uh, so again, thank you. And I look forward to our next uh, conversation. Sounds good.